with that said, uh, I just want to kind of get into it, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, in case you guys don't know, I actually host a, an interview series online called uh, Innovation Crush. And it's a podcast. We have over 700,000 followers around the world. Um, this conversation actually will be posted on, uh, on, our, on our platform. So be sure to, to check that out afterward. Um, hey. What's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, I'm well. Um, welcome. I, you know, I won't do your introduction justice, but I would love for you to like kind of just do a one-on-one on you know who Jason Maiden is and and you know what your career has has been thus far, and then we can get into some other tidbits and, and quips. You will. Perfect. All right. Who? Hello. Who are you? <laughs> just, just give us a little intro. Perfect. So uh, before I, I get into that, I simply want to say thank you to everybody here. I see some familiar faces in the room. I see people that I'm meeting for the first time, and I don't take your time for granted. So I understand that you guys chose to be here today. You don't have to be here, so I really appreciate that. So just give yourself a round of applause for coming, because I appreciate that. A little bit about me. My name is Jason Maiden. I'm originally from the south side of Chicago, born and raised in a neighborhood called the Wild Wild Hundreds. Um, The reason I call that out specifically is because when you turn on the television, the area that I grew up in is presented as it has no hope, no aspiration, no inspiration. There's no opportunities. There's no possibilities for someone that looks like me or grew up like me. Um, But I'm living proof that all the conditions by which we're placed in in society do not define your outcome. You define your outcome by your effort. So I define my outcome by simply challenging stereotypes and challenging possibilities and never giving up on asking questions and asking why not me. Because so many people tell me why me like, oh, yeah, of course you. But why not me? Why can't I be the one? to do what I've done. Why can't you guys be the ones to sit up here in the future and talk about your goals and dreams? So my goals and dreams were to design shoes for the Jordan brand. I did that um, for 14 years. I was Jordan brand's youngest and first design intern. They recruited me when I was 19 years old, a uh, junior in college. So I left high school at the age of 16 and a half because it wasn't because I was extremely smart. It's because I had a sense of urgency to get off the south side of Chicago. Um, and thankfully I did and got into art and design school at CCS in Detroit. So from there, did everything from shoelaces to working on predictive analytics. And you guys will see that in my lecture, the, the, the breadth and depth of work that I've been exposed to. Um, I'm now currently a lecturer and researcher and professor at Stanford University at the D School, which is their design school. So it's not designing with pens and paper. It's more the theory of design and how do you communicate design? How do you research it? And then how do you grow it um, towards the future? And then I'm also vice president of design for a startup called uh, Mark One. And we're focused on nutrition and consumption behavior helping people to uh, feel healthy and be more hydrated and be more just aware of what you put in your body. Because what you put in your body is your fuel. And if you're going to perform on a high level like an athlete, you have to put the proper fuel in your body. So that's hugely important to me. Um, so that's a little bit about who I am. Awesome. Um, you know, when did you realize that your your theory worked, right? Like you talk about as a kid, you, you know, you had this underpinning of like you had a dream and you wanted to do this. When did you realize like, there was no stopping you, right? Because at, at I think we all sort of had goals, yep. <laughs> right? But at, but at some point you go, like hurdles get in the way or you have you know, things happen in life and you end up diverting from that. Yeah, I think it was uh, at the age of five when I was going to turn six. So my first experience with having to make a decision about what was important to me was when I was five. I was literally on my deathbed. I was afflicted with what uh, a disease called septicemia. So you're at five years old and people are looking at you like, man, I don't know if you'll even be able to make it back to first grade tomorrow. You have to have a very deep interpersonal conversation with yourself on like, what do you want to do? And literally when did you, you even spell septicemia? Not at all. And I, <laughs> and I went to Stanford and that just goes to show. That <laughs> not at all. I can tell you what it feels like. But I definitely can't spell it. Um, but what was crazy about it is I remember literally sitting there 
And it was um, it was a Puerto Rican nurse, and I kept asking her for Pepsi free because I was the the beverage of choice at that time, and I thought I was being cool by getting soda when I wasn't supposed to have it. Let me get Pepsi free, and she's like, "Okay, Kayleen, don't talk to me and like touch my curly hair when I had hair." And um, you know, she just she said something to me, and she was like, "You're gonna make it." And when I started to think about that, at five turning six, like make it, what does that even mean? And all these images ran through my head of like, one day I want to be a dad, one day I want to have a car, one day I want to like have a dog. And I was like, man, I do need to think about all these things that I'll miss out on if I give up on, you know, fighting against septicemia. But at the same time, I realized like I have to start living every single day and just being fearless. And from the age of five and six on, like I became completely risk adverse. Like I just run straight towards challenges. I don't have any fear because I know the preciousness of now. I know the urgency of now and taking advantage of every single moment because my first experience with like my first memories were being told that I may not make it. So right. it kind of, the fear was removed from my heart in, in that moment. So, so, so for those of us who have not had near death experiences, yeah. you know, what, how do you convert that into like the average person's, the advice that you would give to an average person? Yeah. So, you know, near death experiences don't have to be physical near death experiences can be with aspirations and dreams. I mean, a lot of us have dream killers in our lives that tell us like, Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, man, why would you be able to do that? Oh, they don't care about what you want to do. You'll never get there. So every day there's a near-death experience that we face when we tell people, um, you know, what we want to be and how we want to dream. Because it takes a tremendous amount of courage to put that out into the world because you're going to be critiqued for your dreams. Most people will tell you that your dreams suck or it's impossible or it's foolish. Um, So I would say we all face near-death experiences every day. And the way you overcome that is, you know, by telling yourself what I do every morning is like somebody has to do it. Why not me? Somebody has to be the first at this. Somebody has to be the next at that. Why am I not, you know, capable of doing that? So would you consider, would you consider yourself a workaholic in that sense? Like, in uh, where do you, where do you achieve work-life balance? Because you're a, a husband and a father yep. and you got, you know, mm-hmm. multiple ventures you're, you're undertaking. So mm-hmm. like, where do you achieve the work-life balance? Or is it like 24-7 hustle or? You know? um, I don't consider what I do work. I, just, I feel like I have a paid hobby. So I think, you know, it's like I would be doing this even if I wasn't, you know, a professional. This is just really what I care about, you know, um, teaching, serving, helping others. So it's less about work. And and the thing is, is I don't, the whole, the concept of work-life balance assumes that there are two things happening at once and you have to prioritize against that. I include my family in everything I do. So they're, they're not passengers on my journey. They're co-pilots. Everything I do, they're part of it in some way, shape or form. Like before I came here, first person I called is my wife. I talked to her, talked to my kids, asked them, what are you doing today? To make sure that they know that your daddy's away, yeah, your husband's away, but you're included in this process. And work-life balance comes through inclusion, not through, you know, always having to be physically present, but being emotionally and, and spiritually and cognitively present, letting them know that you're doing it for them and you're doing it with them, not, you know, not, not separate from them. So I try to make sure that every single presentation I give, every single conversation, I include them in that so that they know they're here. And that's all by design. All about design. <laughs> um, so when you when I think about that, like you as you being a designer by trade, and obviously it sounds like you kind of take that thinking into a lot of what you do, just on personal and professional levels. Um, can you kind of give us, you know, the, the beginning of some of the differences between design and design thinking? Yeah, so it's two extremely um, glaring, obvious differences. So when people hear the term design thinking. People with design backgrounds get offended because they're like, oh, all of a sudden you take a class, you stayed at a, multi- a holiday inn and boom, you can be a designer tomorrow. Um, I used to feel that way when I first heard it. And I'm like, how can somebody just think like a designer? Man, I went to school. I bust my butt. I was in the hospital three times for dehydration and exhaustion to get my design degree. There's no way you can take a class and think like I think. I earned my mindset. But then I realized that 
Um, that was an elitist and an arrogant position, assuming that only people who are creative and go to art school are allowed to talk about creativity because that's a false phenomenon. Like in art school, you sit around people like you. But when you get into the corporate world, you work with marketers, financiers, strategists, and none of them have had your background or experience. So you have to learn how to converse with them, how to articulate your idea and how to get them to buy into it. So design thinking creates a shared lexicon. It creates a, a way for people who are non-creative to communicate with creatives. So when we speak the same language, we can get to better solutions. Because at the end of the day, if design now truly reports into a CEO versus reporting into another function, which is where we're at, design now reports to a C-suite executive, we have to learn how to communicate horizontally with other functions. Right. And so design thinking allows for that. Uh, and there's, there's also um, another difference. So design thinking doesn't mean design doing. Design thinking simply focuses on the process by which you use empathy to understand your consumer and how do you figure out those needs that are unmet. Whereas designing is like, okay, I now know the need. I now know the opportunity in the marketplace. And let me create the solution for that. Let me create the, um, the actual product, service, or experience. So when you mash them all together, it's really just the scientific method and the product design cycle that we go through, you know, ideation, sketching, all that. They just had a baby and it's called design thinking. Um, but now it's moving towards this, 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 this momentum towards creative confidence because creative confidence is, is something that could be ubiquitous and it's not contained to just people who claim to be designers. Everybody can be creatively confident and not have to be limited by a title. Let's put that in like practical terms, right? Like yep. um, fast forward to you working for Jordan. Did you cry on your first day when you, when you got there? I cried in the car. Yeah, like for real, <laughs> like low key. Like first day there, my first experience was, um, you know, I get off the elevator and it's the fourth floor in the Jerry Rice building because Jordan used to sit inside the Jerry Rice building. And I look down and there's two pair of dress shoes. I'm like, this is during my internship. I'm like, why are they wearing dress shoes at Nike? This makes no sense. Everyone should be wearing sneakers. And I look up, it's Larry Miller. I'm like, oh, wow, it's Larry Miller. Look to the right, it's Michael Jordan. So me being a kid, I tried to press the button on the door and pretend like I was on the wrong floor. But I was pressing the button that makes the door go open. So it was doing this awkward, like, <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> so finally, I hit the right button. It starts to close. And MJ sticks his hand through the elevator. And he has, like, massively long fingers. And he's like, are you the intern? So it's, like, super close to my <laughs> chest. I'm in the back, like, uh, yeah, I'm the intern. I'm the intern. And, um, yeah, man, after that experience, I literally went and sat in my, my roommate's car and just, like, just cried. I had my little flip phone call my mom, like, this is crazy. I met Michael. And I'm just like. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a shy town. That's the shy town. Man, that's it. I mean, he was always just this big. I played like he was like a Sega character to me. Like, <laughs> like, I could never afford to go to book. He was like this little like ball. Like, He's a thousand times like, bigger than I thought he was. Like, in real life, look at it. Like, it was it was amazing. So applying like you know your career path there, you know, going from intern to global design director, you know, over the course of fourteen years, you know, what were some of the tactics you took career wise, and like what did you pay attention to? You know, because obviously, like you said, you, you learn design at school. You don't learn design thinking. You don't learn how to communicate. You don't learn like all yeah. these other nuances that achieve, help you achieve success. Yeah. So what was, you know, what was that journey like? Just kind of those benchmarks that happened along the way that were yeah. like, okay, cool. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, I looked at um, my first few years in, in design at Nike and in corporate America. I struggled significantly because I didn't understand when they talk about playing the game. Because I equated playing the game to playing yourself. Like, I'm not going to pretend to be someone that I'm not. I'm not Carlton Banks. I'm not this person that has, like, this pedigree of uh, family history. It's of, not on you. Yeah, you I, just, I couldn't do it. But I didn't realize. Sorry. Yeah, I know the whole, every time I think I'm like, the dance. <laughs> but what, what helped me is once I realized that the nuances of growing up in the inner city are the same nuances of surviving in corporate America. 
Like you have to know your allies. You have to know who controls the resources. You have to know the safe path to go to get to your, you know, your intended destination. So it's the same thing in corporate America. I, I understood who finances design, who makes the financial decisions, because I can hang out with designers, but they don't make the call on budgets. So I started to spend a lot of time with the people in finance. And I was like, OK, I can hang out with designers, but they don't make the call on strategy and how we enter a market. So I spent time with our you know, global strat planning team. And once I started to go into these conversations, I knew that I was at a disadvantage because I didn't have a business degree at the time. So the number one weapon of a designer is the question mark. Like we can go in and ask any question we want and no one will judge us. So I would ask the most off the wall, insanely stupid question about business. And they'll say, oh, look at that. The designer wants to know about discounted cash flows and how we do market penetration strategies and blah, blah, blah. But what, in, in, in those instances, right, like what was your what was your purpose? Because, you know, if, you, if design is your thing, right, yeah. like why go ask about cash flow? Well, I wanted to know who can tell us no, because somebody can tell design no. And it's not design that approves the final concept that makes it to market. It's someone else. So I had to understand how can they tell us no and then eliminate the way they tell us no. And so by me understanding their language, understanding how they view design um, and being one of the only designers that reached out to them to ask for their feedback, I built trust and affinity across the verticals at Nike and people, you know, um, thankfully, it was a tremendous blessing. They put me in situations that I shouldn't have been in, you know, um, conversations to talk about global strategy around, you know, the China consumer or, you know, opportunity to go to Stanford to get a business degree. Well, I find that's, that's interesting because, you know, in a lot of big corporate structures, right, like it's, you know, people are always upset because nobody asked me, right? You know, it's like, like if, you're, uh, if you're the designer or you're the accounting person or you're the marketers, like no one asked me. And, yeah. and by being sort of that glue and going around and like being inclusive, you know, uh, how did that pay off for you? I mean, I, I had a, you know, a tremendous experience with having brilliant mentors and advocates um, who would bring my name up in conversations that I necessarily wasn't invited into. Because that's how opportunities happen in the real world. I mean, people think that you go and you fight and advocate for yourself, but it's really who's advocating for you when you leave the room and what can they say about you that's memorable and valuable. So I, I fortunately learned very, um, you know, specific lessons about advocation versus mentorship. The mentors helped me figure out who I should speak with. The advocates went and eventually spoke on my behalf. And so that was the greatest benefit is, you know, they would bring my name up in these conversations around global leaders and future people who can run the Nike brand an executive level and they'd be like, well, we got this design guy that's always asking about business. What, what, what could he do? Um, and it was, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing, amazing experience that, that led me all the way back to this design thinking thing at Stanford right. because it's important for designers to know how to communicate cross-functionally. So when you look at a, a brand like Jordan, right, and you, you, you know, you, you got half, fa- half fashion, half functionality. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do, you, how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. You know, those, those two you want shoes that look cool, but you want shoes that actually work. Yeah, that's you know. a great question. Um, that's a great question. I mean, thank you. I, re- I rehearsed it. Yeah, I, I can tell, man. This is like Someone this is worth it. This right here, this is the money question. This is the I'm moment. Out. This is the Oprah moment. I might cry. <laughs> um, no, you know, it's interesting because there's always a tension between fashion and functionality um, because utilitarian products are beautiful because they have a simple function and a simple purpose. Like, there's a reason why people keep buying beautiful chairs from Herman Miller. Like, even though it's a beautiful design. It serves a very specific function. Uh, with footwear in Jordan, it's a little bit different because we have three things, three dynamics. We have nostalgia. We have a person who's now ascended to being almost like a myth. Like Michael Jordan is a myth. If you think about the stuff he says and you simplify a story, this man flies through the air and does it. Sounds like a legend. So like everybody thought they were going to dunk from the foul line. Everybody, right? man. <laughs> like, and everybody had the moment where they had the Jordan dirty dunk laundry basket in their room. 
and you go and jump and go through the drywall and <laughs> in your room and then your dad comes. I think it was like seven deaths that were recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Five out of ten, 30 dogs have been returned and recalled due to child. Right. Uh, but, but what's interesting is the way we looked at it is that you have to kind of have that balance between something that is desirable when people wear it with jeans and something that performs when they, when they wear it, you know, on the court. So it's always really, really, really uh, significant amount of tension in that process because the purists are like, no, only focus on function. And then the realists are like, no, it has to be wearable because this is a shoe that has, you know, a significant amount of value. People save up their money to get it. They're not just going to wear it when they play ball. Um, so these are the considerations we used to have to make. And there are strategic trade-offs that you have to make, materials and colors and certain, certain things that you want to push for that you can't do. But at the end of the day, I think that's the beauty of Jordan brand. It has this creative tension and in the middle is, when, it, when it's done right, it really moves the needle forward because every great product serves a pure function but still creates a new look or a new moment. And um, Jordan, you know, historically has been that, that brand that did that. It had the function, it had the proper moment, which was All-Star Weekend, and that magic happened from there. Um, I just thought about something. It's kind of a, a weird duality, right? Like you, yeah. you growing up in, in sort of the hood, I also grew up in Detroit, right? Um, I had a cousin who was robbed for his Jordans. Yeah. Right? Like, so. <laughs> Not so, by me. <laughs> yeah. Like, give my Jordans back. <laughs> I designed those. No. Um, so, like, what was, like, did you ever feel like a social responsibility, like, while you were there, you know? Um, oh, yeah. And, and what was happening? And how did you handle that? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole time um, I was at Jordan Brand, you know, every time I designed a shoe, I thought about it through the lens of this is probably a kid's first time buying a pair of shoes that, you know, has a Jumpman logo. So it has to mean something special to them. So beyond just that part of the storytelling and the immense amount of details we put into the work, I would literally go to sneaker releases and stand in line with them and buy my own shoes. Like I very rarely ask for anything for free. So when people were standing in line and queuing up and they were like, oh, you must get everything for free. I would go and I would talk to them and thank, like literally thank them and let them know, like, there are real people who understand why you're here. There are real people in the community that care um, and just trying to be a face for the brand in a real way that allows them to have a personal connection and relationship, particularly in my neighborhood in Chicago, um, where a lot of kids wear Jordans and a lot of kids have challenges because they wear Jordans. So there's only, I'm only one human being and there's only so much I can do, but I tried to make sure that I gave a face to the brand. So if people wanted to complain, people wanted to talk and ask questions, they knew that I was there at least in the community trying to build a bridge. Um, You know, it didn't always work out well. Sometimes it worked out exceedingly well, but I think that social responsibility was just never forgetting where I came from and making sure that I always went back to Chicago and, and, and supported the people that supported me. That's awesome. Um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, this idea of like concept versus constraint, mm-hmm. right? Like you, whatever you have on paper is like, yeah, I'm going to put alligator on the, on the underside of the shoe and like, you, like whatever the, the sort of like creative vision you have. Yeah. And then you start to shop that around like your peers within the organization or just like sourcing materials or you know, all the different like hurdles you hit that may diminish your vision a little bit. Um, Tell us about like navigating those constraints and like still keeping, you know, an innovative eye for what's going to be cool in the marketplace. Yeah, I think great design um, is great editing, you know, and great curation. Um, Conceptual work, it's the equivalent of hitting a game with a jump shot in your driveway. It's like it's a moment that happens that no one saw that had no <laughs> right. real significant impact. I've had many of those. Many of those, like, oh, for the three. I'm dope. And you hit it, and it's like, <laughs> but when you're put in a game time situation and the ball is really in your hand, those constraints allow you to focus on the task at hand and allows you to get to the purity of the idea itself. So we would navigate it by simplifying it into one. We, at Nike, one of the core things we would focus on is how do you get it to be sharp in one sentence? 
like what is the one sentence real quick description of your product and that takes a huge amount of uh of editing to get to that mm-hmm. simple pure statement like okay you design a shoe it's intended to do x and you have to articulate that quickly and briefly so we had this mindset of being brief and brilliant it wasn't you know getting up and dancing it was like brief and brilliant real quick what is it and you have to sell it and once people can understand it, because that's how consumers are, you only get three seconds, literally. Your mind focuses for the first three seconds of anything you see or hear. You get, they walk past the shoe, oh, that looks nice. If they don't stop, grab that, look at it, see the details and purchase it, you lose them. So we try to condition ourselves under constraints to design um, in the same way that the consumer sees the product on the shelf. That's great. Um, you left Nike. <laughs> um, why was that? You know, fourteen yeah. year stint and, and some amazing products. Like what? It was it was a lot of reasons. Um, all of them were positive. The, the only one that was negative was my son um, became you know tremendously sick due to food allergies and food intolerances. And and I always told everyone at Nike I was very vocal. If anything ever came between my family and his job, it will be the job that will get <laughs> removed from my life. Um, you know, growing up, learning how to be frugal because we didn't have much. I wasn't afraid of not working because I never lived beyond my means. You know, I kept a very simple life. I didn't have flashy stuff. I didn't go out and get a car that I couldn't afford or move into a mega house. So being able to step away financially and support my family uh, for almost a year to just simply use the design process to, to, to get to the root cause of his sickness uh, was a tremendous blessing. And so because of that, you know, um, I don't feel like I quit Nike or I just feel like I, that chapter has closed and, and, you know, a new one began. And Nike's always in the background. You yeah. know, uh, all the work I've done for 14 years helped for me to be able to do what I'm doing now with my son. I think you touched on something really key, you know, is financial stability and being smart with money. You know, I, I spoke at a, at a college recently and that was one of the questions is like, oh, you know, how do you go about job security? And really the theory was save your money, <laughs> right? Because the company may close, you might get fired, like anything could happen where you, suddenly you're out on the street, right? And, and what most of us end up doing is going to like what we need versus what we want, you know, because like, you know, like you said, you were, you were smart with your money. So kudos, you know, just on being able to, to, um, to navigate the, that, those circumstances. Um, and so you now made this jump to, to sort of, uh, entrepreneur <laughs> startup guy. Um, so tell us about Mark one a little bit and you know, what you're doing there now and how you're taking like design thinking and what you do into a, a very, very different world. Yeah, so it's um it's interesting because if you look at the full equation of, of of people, we talk about it as A plus C equals B. So activity plus consumption equals behavior change. So for 14 years, I focused on physical activity, like how to make, you know, athletes perform at an extremely high level based on footwear technologies and cognitive, um, you know, uh, research around what is the mindset of an athlete, how do they become inspired, and so on and so forth. When you look at consumption, it's the same thing, and it's an even more prevalent problem a relevant problem, I should say, to solve because everybody has struggled at some point with the food that they eat because food does determine your output, meaning your activity level. So at Mark One, we've worked on a cup called the Vessel and it does automated nutrient tracking. And what that means is... when that does have a hip-hop spelling. That's got a Y in it. Vessel, it has a Y. No, it has, that's a Silicon Valley. Oh. <laughs> no, every startup has like, they, you got to right. put a Y. Yeah, like the exactly. I for the Y. All it's the company like, names are gone. Yeah, like, you, you make up something. You make it up and then you put L-Y at the end like... It's like we can make a company called Jumply right now. Just like, you just put Lee at the end. It's a startup, you know, like Swagly. I'll focus on the epicenter of swag and, and digital technology. You can make anything up uh, in terms of titles. 
And get millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. Um, and so, yeah, Mark, when we focus on nutrition, we focus on consumption behavior, and we focus on um, helping people reach an optimal state of well-being. Um, and that's cognitive and physical. So how you think and how you feel are connected. Um, and so it's an amazing technology um, that was worked on for seven years by, by the co-founder. And it uses a series of sensors. And I learned about these sensors um, during my time in digital sport at Nike, working on the field band stuff. Um, and how to integrate those into smaller products. So something that is traditionally done in the lab, a massive room, is now done just in this ubiquitous form factor that we've all seen before, which is a cup or a bottle. So that's why we call it the vessel, um, because it is a vessel that contains not only beverages you drink, but, you know, um, things that can help you feel better and, and perform better. Um, and just to put it in perspective, you can correct me on this if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I read that as of like July of last year, you guys had already sold like a million dollars worth of product in pre-sales. So, you know, just to add a level of validity to the product, and these are like a hundred bucks each, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, which is a huge success to not even have a product out in the marketplace. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, you know, how did the company go about communicating the value? And, and the, the cups look really cool, right? Like there's a light sensor on it. I mean, you guys should look it up definitely. It's, you know, very sleek design. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, how do you go about communicating a product before it even launches? Oh man, the power of the narrative is real. I mean, when you show people in everyday scenarios, um, you, there's very little explaining that you have to do. I mean, we showed real people doing things that we do every day, going for a run, you know, people doing, you know, stretching exercises, whether it's yoga, whatever it is, people just commuting, going to and from work. So we didn't try to oversell this product as being like this magical thing. What we tried to do is say, this isn't artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence, meaning that we don't want to replace your ability to make decisions about what you eat. We just want to help you make better decisions. That's it. We just want to give you a little bit more data in the moment so you can make a choice, so you don't feel bad retrospectively. So in our, in our pitch campaign, the video, a head of marketing uh, and brand, Nick Barnes, was an executive at Levi's, was at Procter Gamble before that. And he did a really great job of simplifying our narrative so that it looked like something that everyone can relate to. If you're not that person, you know that person. You know, um, so it's, it's just being where, you know, we're an aspirational band, brand, but at the same time, we're aspirational to show people's examples of themselves, not, you know, the superhero um, yeah. images that you typically see. Um, so making that jump again from, you know, corporation, large corporation, global corporation to startup, like what were some of the learning curves you had to adjust with? You know, you have to get your own coffee. <laughs> uh, I never, I never was that that, that bougie at Nike. Dude. I always, I always bring my lunch. I always get my own coffee because I don't. Why did make me get your coffee then? Uh, you didn't have to. <laughs> uh, no, I mean the, the key learning curves to startups is that you don't design products, you design cultures, you design business models. So the product is a byproduct of the culture. So the first step was to create um, a culture of innovation and a culture of curiosity. So we don't focus on the innovation; we focus on the innovator. And everyone in our company is considered an innovator in some respect. Um, so that was the first thing. Having to design a culture uh, was extremely difficult. And it's still difficult because, you know, as you grow, there are different stages of development with cultures. You know, right now we're 30 plus people. When I started, it was seven of us. Um, so that means that we're at a different stage in terms of the social dynamics, in terms of the politics and how people and groups actually communicate and work. So it's an ever, ever changing process. So that's the first one. The second one is uh, being extremely scrappy and being biased towards action, like not waiting on the finished thing to be done, but just getting it out into the world and, you know, being fearless in terms of feedback and seeking harsh critiques. Um, the thing about startups is people, the people who fail 
they're fa- they fail because they're. By the way, I want to preface this. Like, I feel like everybody in this room is a startup, right? Like everybody, you, like as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as like you know, you're going about your career. You are an entrepreneur. You know, sometimes you kind of pigeonhole yourself into yeah. whatever your title is. But if you're, you know, everybody in here is, has a product, you know, whether it's intelligence or a physical thing that they yeah. are selling. So I just wanted to preface it. Yeah, you know? totally agree. You're the CEO of yourself. So you have to have a plan and a vision for yourself. Um, and that, that, that plays into, you know, the, the failing forward. You have to fail forward. People think about, you know, oh, if I do this and the world thinks it's whack, like who cares what people think? Like get the data, get the feedback, put it out into the world quickly for folks to understand the true reaction. And then you can tweak, 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 tweak and edit. Um, so that was the second piece, getting stuff out there quicker. Um, not tweaking the drug way, right? Uh, no, no, no. Tweak the design. Okay. All right. <laughs> you just, just keep sure. going to the just, negative place. <laughs> just like, make, just making sure. <laughs> um, no. And so with it, I mean, you talk about the, the team growth, you know, yeah. I, I want to be mindful of the fact that you're awesome. And at the same time, I'm sure you work with teams. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, and, and how important is team in accomplishing, you know, the, the, the kinds of stuff that, you're, that you've been talking about? Oh, that's a thousand percent. Um, the reason why, you know, you use the word awesome. I just reuse the word average. I'm just really good at being me. I'm just, that's it. I'm not the best at anything, but I'm just the best at being me. So if it comes across as awesome, then thank you for that. I, I received that compliment. Um, my team is exactly the reason why I'm successful. I had a team that I work with at Nike. I have a team that I work with here. And there's some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. You know, there are people from Mercedes that have joined. There are people from GE, formerly Nike. There are people from, you know, from Camelback, the, the, the water um, vessel company. And I feel so fortunate because as a manager, as an executive, or as anybody starting a business, you have to delegate with courage. You have to be willing to let go of certain pieces of control of that process. You have to empower other people. And so what I tell my team all the time is, I empower you to make the decisions. It's my job to question how you made that decision. Did you use the right inputs? Did you get the right data? Did you ask the right questions? But they have full, um, you know, personal control to make a decision. I just have to come in and make sure they use the right inputs. Right. Um, and, and, you know, again, just kind of go back to this idea of being a startup. And as an individual, right, you have this one craft and skill that you're good at. Like, how do you go about identifying those team members and attracting them into what's essentially a risky environment, right? Somebody comes from Mercedes to work at Vessel, you know, it's like, that's a risky move, right? So how do you go about like, hey, invest your time and energy in me and this vision and our team and what we're trying to accomplish? Well, I think the first thing we screened for were people who felt like they were underdogs, organizations who felt like they could contribute more if they were given a chance. Um, so that was one of the, the core cultural factors we wanted were people who had, you know, um, you know, we called it um, quiet confidence. Um, so folks who weren't boisterous and arrogant about, oh, look at me, look at me. It was people who just kind of felt like if I was given a shot, I could do more. And so that was the first thing we screened for. Second thing is when we talk about the vision of the company, we put it through the lens of, you know, them themselves and feeling like, hey, man, have you ever been a been in a situation where you feel completely out of whack because you drank too much coffee and you're nervous the night before a presentation, you can't get sleep and you just feel horrible. And so we tried to use scenarios that everybody, you know, in that environment, corporate America or design startup or whatever can relate to. Then the third piece is just told them, I was completely bluntly honest with them. Like you join a startup, there's a chance this thing will not work. If you sign up for it, you know, I can't promise you success, but I promise you that I'm going to work my hardest to, to put you in a situation where you at least can be happy during this process. So, um, I was very honest about my intentions with them. I was very honest about my weaknesses and why I was hiring them because, you know, my, they are, they're strong in areas where I'm weak. Um, and we focus on this whole mindset of, you know, it's not, it's not about 
Jason and what he's doing. It's about us collectively and where we, what we're doing. So thankfully, the right people decided to join and now we're, we're moving. And when it comes to team environments and, you, you know, you're constantly connecting with people, running ideas by each other, um, you're getting yeses, probably more no's than yeses. Um, you know, what, even from a design standpoint, maybe back at Nike or even now, like, how do you handle the nose? Right. Um, because a lot of times that vision you have may not be able to come to fruition or somebody's going to correct you. And you'd like, you know, you want to battle and fight for that one piece that you think is right on point. And the committee has decided to, to not agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a constant challenge. I mean, you have to be comfortable with conflict. And not take anything personal. Like, we're talking about the product, man. We're talking about a cup. I'm like, you saying you don't like that cup doesn't mean you're saying you don't like me. So um, that's the first thing, removing emotion from the conversation and making sure it's completely logical. You know, seeking out conflict and tension, not running from it because it's, it's part of the design process. Um, when people say no, I always ask for proof. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, why is it a no? Because if it's your gut, then, you know, we could talk about that. If you have significant experience and it's a background that is relevant and you say based on your experience and your gut, it should be a no, I'll consider it heavily. Um, and you have to be willing to have strategic trade-offs. Like you will never have 100% of your vision make it to market. But if you can get 75% of it to market and you allow other people to be included in that vision, it just builds an environment of, like I said, cohesion where everyone feels included. Because if design controlled everything and it's 100% what we want, then why would we need everybody else in the company? People are just there to just say, oh, okay, design does everything. We're just here to support them. That's not, that's it's not cool. And, and it's also not real. Um, and so you have to be willing to leave 25% for people to share, you know, in terms of design equity. If you have a startup, you have equity you give out to people to join. If you have a design product, put a budget together and say 75% of my idea, I'm keeping 25%. I negotiate with that. I'll let people be participating at 25%. So give yourself a budget to negotiate on your concept. Otherwise you'll get extremely frustrated and then it'll never come to market. That's great. Um, you know, we talk just kind of touching on this whole entrepreneurial angle. You know, a lot of I think part of the culture now is, you know, people out of college or in college or college age, you know, used to be you're forming bands. Right. Now people are forming companies. And, you know, sometimes when you're doing that, it's um, a theory behind it is that you don't have enough life and work experience to actually identify a problem to solve. Mm. Right. So where, what advice do you give entrepreneurs to like, you know, take that job versus go after your vision? You know, do you want to gain experience or do you or should you just go and make the, you know, try to make the thing? I mean, it's, it's different for different people. Um, you know, it's really hard to give advice because I can't I don't know everybody's life conditions. I can't tell people exactly what to do. But from my experience, um, having. You know having a few wins under your belt, you know, out the door from college, you know, working for a company gives you confidence to try. Like I would never have been confident to jump into a startup had I not had, you know, some wins under my belt from Nike. I would have been completely um, worried about my ability to deliver because I had never seen anything that I've worked on come to market. So it just creatively gave me a tremendous amount of confidence because I knew I can do it. I knew I could deliver at a high level. I knew I had something to say. So I used working for someone else as a chance to learn what it takes to do my own thing. You know, um, so I, whenever you have a chance to be an apprentice, because when you think about working for someone, if you say, oh, I'm working for someone, it feels like, you know, economic slave mentality. But if you say I'm going here to be an apprentice to learn from someone instead of working with someone, then it's a better, better time because you can now 
curate your experience to make sure you learn very key things before you depart from that company or start your own thing. So I look at it like this. If you got to start a business. Somebody else might as well invest in you learning how to do it. So work for someone else and let them pay for Get you Get paid to while you learn, right? Get paid while you learn and then apply that learning to your own thing if you can. But if you're risk adverse and you want to get after it and get after it, you know? Um, I consider you average. Now that you correct me. Thank you. Um, but, I'll, but also consider <laughs> you, you an innovator. Um, and on Innovation Crush, one of the things we always ask people is to complete this phrase. Yeah. Um, innovation to me is... Innovation to me is being unapologetically you. Um, the most innovative thing you can be is yourself in today's world because everybody's trying to be a different version of someone that already exists. It's like I go to Instagram and I literally, if I close, if I put my hand over most people's faces on Instagram, it's the same person, like the same outfit, the same position and all this. I'm like, man, it, it's, it's, it's just unfortunate. That was two, you channeled Tupac on that one. That, right that was, now, <laughs> right now, but at least he was the first to do it. <laughs> he was an innovator. Um, you know, and I think, it, you know, nowadays because we, we allow for people to be celebrated for mediocrity that people are afraid to try something new because everyone wants to aggregate towards the middle and be known for something that everyone else is known for. So I think innovation to me is just completely being yourself, unapologetically yourself, like admitting your weaknesses, you know, finding people that can push you and motivate you and learning how to ask for help. Because when you do that, then you're truly, you know, taking in different data points from the world that allow you to have a unique perspective to create an innovation. That's what innovation needs. It needs a unique perspective. It doesn't need knowledge of technology. It doesn't need, you know, a lot, a lot of capital. It needs somebody to ask a question that never has been asked before. And that's, I, I like that you made that point because a lot of, you know, um, innovation comes from diverse perspectives too, right? The, the, that team environment, it's important to not hire people that look and think like you, mm-hmm. but hire people that like look different from you and will think differently from you and maybe challenge your, your convention. Um, I do want to take a few minutes to open it up for questions. Um, so, oh, we have a mic here. Hmm. <laughs> Anybody? It's always hard to get the first one out. Gentlemen. <laughs> I'm not a rap. I don't blame you. Okay. You touched on the apprenticeship part and there's a book Robert Greene wrote about called Mastery that touches on apprenticeship and it talks about the next step after apprenticeship is actually going and applying mm-hmm. whatever you've been creating and taking more of an active role with that concept. Um, I had a similar experience leaving a company, not Nike, obviously, or into that stature and starting my own venture and quickly realized that it you have the confidence and even though you know what that you can deliver it is a different experience and it touches your bottom line differently because now it's you know you digging into your personal budget other than you know the corporation's budget how did you um mentally handle that and what things gave you the confidence to dig up out of that you know and and i think you you know what the area area i'm talking about maybe you didn't get to that and maybe it was a little bit too late in that startup but i know with seven people it was still a situation where you guys lost a lot more than you won Oh, yeah. um, and, and how did you guys handle those losses and promote more victories? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a tremendous question. So um, the first piece uh, in complete honesty is like how how we how I personally get through losses is I pray like I prepare. Like I walk in I'm, I, I, and I, I pray every single day like, yo, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. So just knowing when to ask for help. You know, and knowing who to ask for help um, was hugely important. Some people, you know, if that's not your thing, if you don't pray, there's somebody you can talk to and ask for help. There's, you know, so find, 
a trusted source. Find someone that you can confide in your fears, concerns, and worries. Because when you don't let that out, it eats you and it consumes you. And then it just becomes a cascading effect of bad decisions. So that was step number one. I had to immediately get over my ego and be like, yo, I need help. And so I didn't know who to turn to, so I pray, which is my my primary source of of inspiration and confidence. Second, I think we talk about those losses. We looked at it like, you know, every decision we make is a step forward. So if we have to cut something, we have to simplify something, we have to, you know, uh, put, you know, restraints on our capital expenditures, we have to pivot in terms of our strategy. As long as we're moving, just keep moving. Like we stay in constant motion. And I try to replicate that in my physical life. So if you see me walking through the streets, you know how people stop at a corner and wait to cross? Man, I just walk the other way and keep going. And so I just stay in motion. And so that's how we, as a startup, even now to this day, we're staying alive because it's like we have to keep the momentum going in a direction. Um, Because at this point, you know, when you start a new venture, like you said, you don't know what the destination is. You know what your intended destination is. So at that point, when you don't have that fixed outcome because you can't control the conditions that determine success, all roads lead to that destination. So as long as you're just willing to keep going, then you'll be further than where you started. So I think those are the mentalities or the tactics I use daily. It's like, man, first thing I do, I get up as I pray. Next thing I do is I stay in motion like all the time. I'm just like, keep moving, keep learning, keep asking questions, keep keep reaching out to people um, and asking them, you know, how did they get through it? So exactly what you're doing. I, I do this every day for in any moment, whether I'm talking to a, a woman at Starbucks, I'm talking to some guy at the gym when we're playing basketball, like, yo, what do you do for a living? How do you do that? What do you get that from? So every every person I interact with becomes an inspiration or a data point for me. And Jason will be leading a prayer after the event today. Anybody that so needs it, we can. Uh, yeah, you're joking. <laughs> hey, I'm all for it. Uh, anybody else? Next question. I don't know if I'm going to get feedback. Yeah. All right. My name is Justin Marks. I'm here with uh, some students from from Inglewood and from the Black Male Youth Academy. Um, at a, it's uh, from a nonprofit, the Social Justice Learning it's a Institute. Stylist group. You say it again. It's a stylist group. It is. It yeah. is. They are. Uh, it's swaggly. Uh, <laughs> swaggly. They're a startup. Just happened. One point five million in capital raise. <laughs> <laughs> there was a uh, going off your last point and also building on that. Um, when I studied at Cal State Northridge, I had a professor there in the Pan African Studies Department, and he said kind of similar to what you said. He, he, and this is something that I, you know, I've reiterated to my students that if you don't know where you're going, then any road will get you there, right? And basically, you know, to keep in motion, but at the same time, that's that's um, it could be seen as wasted energy mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. Yes, you trust your process, but at the same time, what? Uh, what does that process look like for you as far as gaining that clarity, mm-hmm. gaining, um, you know, the, the, the picture of your desired destination to mm-hmm. be able to carve that out mm-hmm. with your group? You have, you know, a product mm-hmm. there may be something else that's on the horizon for you. But but how do you how do you how do you flush that idea? out? I remember you said it was like shooting the jump shot in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. But again, that, that that editing, being able to keep coming back to that. How do you how do you get there? Yeah. So we um, uh, first thank you all for coming, you know. Um, I'm really thank happy. you. Yeah, I'm really happy y'all are here because the one thing I think, you know, I learned in my life growing up on the south side of Chicago in the neighborhood I was in is that you barely can think beyond your first 24 hours of your day, let alone the next five years. It's like, can I even make it to 18, let alone 28, 38, 48? Um, so in the business sense, as I started to get deeper into design, we would put what was called a North Star out there. And so we'll say, okay, where do we want to be in five years? Because it's less risk to go five years out. It's a little bit more risky when you think a year out. And so we'll say five years from now, we have a big, hairy, audacious goal, which we call a BHAG, which is you hear a lot in startups or business speak. And our big goal was to dominate the home in terms of, like, let's say, the kitchen. 
Like everything in there, we want to own that. Then you just from there, you do deduction. You say, well, how do we get there? In order to own the kitchen, you first need to own stoves. You need to own refrigerator. You need to own all these different items. So start with the craziest thing you can think of and then just work backwards. You know, because um, along the way, you know, stuff will happen, stuff will change. But as long as you have that, that vision that sits three to five years out, um, it's easy to keep moving because because it, it's no risk involved in, in, in terms of trying stuff to get to that vision. The only risk is when you start with no big picture. So our big picture is literally like, hey, we want to own consumption behavior and we want to own the kitchen. We don't know what that looks like. It could be a tremendously different path from where we are today. But putting that on the table allows us to kind of work backwards and take little steps towards that. So um, did, you, did you have that going into the internship? No, nah, you know, I, I just wanted free shoes. To be honest, that was it. I just wanted to go back home and impress like the girl who didn't go to homecoming with me. Like I told you, you know? <laughs> boom! <laughs> told you, I told you I was gonna be somebody. Um, and you know, but once I got to Nike, man, you know, I I started to see people who talked about this thing called a dream because you know, a dream. The whole concept of having a dream, it's not a fair concept. It's no equitable function to having a dream because that assumes that everybody starts from the same place, has the same expectations placed on them placed on them. It has the same set of possibilities. I didn't have those expectations. I didn't have those possibilities. So the idea of dreaming was like ridiculous to me. I'm like, dreams, please. I'm just trying to literally go to school without getting in, into a fight. Um, so once I got to Nike and I heard people talk about their dreams, I heard people make plans for their future. I heard people talk about what they were doing to save money for their kids. I was like, you know what? This is normal human behavior to have expectations. And I knew that no one was putting those high expectations on me. So I put them on myself. Like also I, being not, not afraid to socialize it. You have, right? to, socialize like you have it. To, to be willing to have that conversation and put it out there and talk to people about it. Yeah, but, the, but getting over that fear, mm-hmm. um, you know, like my mom and my dad both told me, like, close mouths don't get fed. And I used to sit in meetings and never say anything. I was like, man, they don't want to hear from me. Then I was like, you know what? The only thing that they can do is either laugh or say no. So I might as well say it anyway because I look just as foolish not saying something as I do saying something. So I might as well at least put it out there. Maybe somebody else in the room has that same question. So I got over the fear of being judged because I'm like, I can't waste my moment. I got to speak up. I got to ask a question, regardless of what people expected of me or thought of me. I'm like, this is about me. And I need to know if this is you know, true, if this is false. Um, so that's 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 a lot of it, man. It's just, you know, setting those expectations on yourself and not waiting on the world to tell you that you're great. But telling yourself, like, I'm going to be great at something. I don't know what that something is, but I'm going to be great at it. And also you talked about like the disheartening piece of like that journey and the navigation, right? Is, you know, part of you, in my personal view, like has to be willing to enjoy the journey, right? Like knowing you're going to land somewhere amazing and it might be bumpy. Like it's like a road trip, right? Like you go, you go into Florida, but like you didn't know that the freeway was going to be closed and like you ran out of gas and like all these other things that happen. But then when you look back on it, it's, it's a ha 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 moment, right? Like, but in the moment it's like, it, it may seem daunting and feel daunting, but you keep going. Oh, yeah. I mean, J. Cole said it properly when he was like, it's beauty in the struggle, loneliness and the success. It's very true. Struggle is beautiful because it gives you a perspective that is relatable to the rest of the world. So when you look at America, this is a false phenomenon. The rest of the world is going through significant struggle with water, with famine, with infrastructure breaking down. But we take for granted these beautiful things. But we don't realize that struggle is a universal language that everyone can relate to. So struggle is the most beautiful, tactical thing you can have because you've been through something. That's why you should expect yourself to succeed, not in spite of it. Because we look at it like, oh, man, I don't have this. I can't be good at it. No, because you don't have it, you're not distracted. You can focus more. We have so much stuff. I think that I think the real failing of of our current situation in America is that we give our kids too much and they don't know how to survive without stuff. So now we're handicapping them to learn how to do it for themselves because everything else does it for them. So 
you got to you got to really enjoy that struggle because it definitely is going to allow you to draw from it um, when you have difficult situations. Got a question over here. Um, so speaking to the uh, younger people in the room, yeah. like college age students are going out to the work world. I was wondering what advice you have for a young designer interested in footwear, what they should be focusing on looking forward, trying to enter the workforce and yeah. join into this industry. Yeah, I would say learn about supply chain immediately. Um, so footwear design as an industry is impacted by the resources we can use to create our footwear. So when you understand micro and macroeconomics and supply chain, you know that, okay, when oil prices go up, leather prices go up. So maybe leather isn't a great material to use if I'm a young footwear startup, because I'm gonna have to pay a huge amount of money just to get leather. And then you have, then that allows you to have vendor relationships and supply chain relationships. So you can get what's called economies of scale or efficiencies throughout your, your process. So knowing how to manipulate the structure so that you can put the best product out there with a great profit margin that doesn't compromise your vision is hugely important because we can draw anything we want, but if they can't make it at a, at a cost that's fair where we can get some type of profit and revenue from it, then it's like, man, it becomes a beautiful portfolio of stuff that the world's never seen. So you don't have to go and get a business degree. Just literally there's a ton of stuff online. There's a guy named Hal Lee, who's a professor at Stanford. He created this thing called the bullwhip effect and bullwhip effect is, is how supply chain is changing around the world because of these little microeconomies that exist within countries. So people are producing goods closer to the demand. So, you know, they call it local for local. So if you're in the U.S., like Shinola is a good example of that, Shinola watches. They make it in Detroit and they sell it in the U.S. So they cut down on steps, you know, in the supply chain process, which allows them to have a profit, employ people in the U.S. that are part of a union and, and still have a decent brand. So knowing that as a designer, you become deadly because then that takes away the way people can tell you no. Along those lines, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was trend spotting, right? Like, yeah. how do you know, how do you, what's the predictive indicators of what's going to be hot? What's not going to, sometimes you want to be future forward and then sometimes you want to follow the trend, but where's the middle ground of, of doing a little bit of both? Oh man, that's a, that's a great question. Um, trend spotting, I mean, it, it starts with first look at, look at economics, you know, um, in years where there's recessions or depressions, people spend less money on things that are frivolous and they spend more money on things that are utilitarian. So they get a long, long tail usage. So you can kind of see, okay, if, if the economy is bad, people probably won't go out and buy, you know, a lot of stuff that's disposable. They want to buy stuff that's fixed. So that means that I can create a business that is made with materials that are built to last. So once you understand a little bit of economic trends, that helps. Then you go into, obviously you look at fashion, fashion, um, fashion is fantasy. And they kind of say, you know, what does the ideal human look like? And that helps understand, you know, colors, materials, and so on and so forth. Um, and then from there, I think the greatest thing that always is relevant is just nature. Like looking at biomimicry, looking at, you know, the earth and how it's evolving. Like all of that plays into people's emotions because that's what products do. Products bring out certain reactions, and those reactions are based on people's experiences in life. So once you understand the conditions that people live in, then you can always spot the trends that are relevant to them because you can't go to a person and say, yo, what do you want? Because they can't tell you. They don't know. But looking at their environment, you know, and, and which is what we'll talk about in the lecture, you know, empathy and the observation piece and ethnography and all these different fields that help you study behavior, you can be a little bit closer to predicting what's going to work. All right. Question over here. Um, all right. Um, my name is Chris. I'm here with some other people. We came down from the Bay. Um, we all have uh, our part of the clothing line and a recording studio up there, but we have right. more people part of the team up there. And I hear you talking a lot about teams. Yep. Um, my question comes from 
everyone on the team serves their purpose, right? And they yeah. bring something to the table. But some people, one person right now that we're dealing with, he brings stuff to the table, but he doesn't bring any, like, motivation. Mm. Or, like, he isn't there all the time. He doesn't mm. want to. And it's all, like, it's not like there's a, a boss or a schedule. It's like you got to just put the time in and yeah. be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when's the point where, like, you just cut off yeah. the dead weight and move forward or yeah. try to encourage them and, and show them the benefit of the doubt? Like, yeah. where would you draw the line, I guess, I'm asking? That's a great question. And thank you for coming from the Bay. I live in the Bay, so it's, it's near and dear to my heart. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could have done this at home. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Live from my basement <laughs> using FaceTime. Uh, that's a great question. You know, managerial courage. Um, so there's there's a principle where they talk about be slow to hire, quick to fire. But what that means is I think you have to, you have to, and it's a very soft framework in the language. So you have to appropriate the language for how your culture at your company works. So what we would do is say, I like, I wish, I wonder. And you say, what I like about you is this, man. You do that, that works. I wish you would do more of this. And I wonder if you tried that, will we get a different result? So it, it, it points at the behavior, not at the person. And you start off with a, I like, so you let them know. That's called positive climate building. You build like a, a, a positive energy around the conversation. And then you go into, you know, I wish is when you're talking about the expectations for them, the behaviors you want them to display. And then you propose that question because then what happens is both parties become fixed on finding a collective solution. Versus you saying, you figure it out, man, we need you here. So whatever, however you want to frame that, um, this has been a tried and tested, you know, framework that's been used in conflict resolution in corporations a lot. Certain people use, I like, I wish certain people use, you know, um, you know, um, needs improvement. How do we improve? How might we and all these other statements? But essentially what you're trying to do is not attack the person, attack their behaviors. If you attack them, then communication shuts down immediately and they don't want to work towards a middle, work towards a solution. So all your conversations should be about, you know, accountability to one another, to a bigger mission. Make sure everyone knows your mission and your vision. If you don't have a mission statement and a vision statement, then it's a waste of time because nobody knows where you're going anyway. So make sure everybody's aligned uh, against that mission. Don't seek agreement. Only focus on alignment. 99% of the time, y'all won't agree. But if you align on a mission, then chances are you'll keep moving forward. And then, like I said, don't make it personal, man. Make it about the process. Make it about the behaviors and not the, not the person that the behaviors come from. And you'll start to see, and the more you practice it, the more comfortable you become with it. Because in any business, whether, you know, you guys have a complicated one, a recording studio and a, a you know, clothing brand, those are two different types of demands, two different types of mindsets. So you have a very unique chance to design a culture that creates some very interesting, creative conflict resolution conversations. Um, so don't be afraid to try different things. You know, get outside of your office and talk, you know, go to a place where this person feels like they may be in control. Go to, go to a place, let them pick the place where the conversation happens. You know, don't sit across from a table, sit at a circular table so there's no visual hierarchy. You know, little tricks that you can do to, to make this person feel like they're here to work with me, not against me. Because I can guarantee you, he probably is like, man, they're plotting on me. They're trying to push me out or she's like, they're plotting on me. Well, that's kind of what happened. I don't know you're talking about that now. And yeah. You're supposed to come down and talk about this all next week. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can say right now this person is putting together their game plan, their defense, how they're going to come in and like argue on their behalf. You deflate that situation by simply saying, man, you know, how can we work together to figure this out? You know, when you do this, this is how I receive it. I just want to make sure I'm interpreting your behaviors correctly. Can you just make sure, you know, how should I interpret that when you do that? Don't come in judging. Have them explain themselves and then create that conversation when y'all working together towards a solution.
There's a question over here. Yeah, that's me. Um, you know, you talk a lot about alignment. Yeah. Uh, you know, you said be brief and brilliant. Um, you know, it's all about great editing and communication. I believe exactly what you said. You know, closed mouths don't get fed. If you don't ask a question, nothing gets answered. Yeah. So I'm curious of like, you know, you went out, you talked to the finance team, the marketing team, you know, the business side. What made you then to make the decision of, okay, I need an education in this full on. You know, you're at, you're getting your questions answered, yeah. and that's kind of where I'm at. Curious yeah. uh, currently, like I'm studying a lot of design and stuff. Yeah. It's pushing me to now look at the whole entire hundred, not just like you know, ten feet back, but really looking at it from a hundred miles back. Of yeah. like, what is this whole system doing? How's this branding going? Are they being aligned, like you yeah. said? Yeah. And now I'm like questioning, like, do I need to go study business? Like, yeah. but what pushed you over that edge is what I'm kind of curious. And what did you get out of the education? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the first thing is like, I've always wanted, so my, my background before design, before art, um, I was going to play football and I was going to study engineering, but I was hit by a drunk driver and had to make sure I had a secondary hustle. I was like, man, football thing's not going to work out as a running back with a, a bum shoulder. So I, I need to make sure I, you know, go into art. So, when I finally got through, like you said, the question asking, and I got a chance to be at the table, the decision table, I realized that other people made decisions for design. Other people did that. The designer was just there to bring up the, you know, the creative cool and, you know, the climate in the room, like, oh, this is the cool guy. Hey, he's here. Hey. But when decisions came to be made, it was like, no one asked me my opinion. It's because they didn't think that I had the competency to, to make a business call. So they would always say, yeah, stay in your lane. Or, yeah, that's, you know, that, that's great in design. But, you know, this, this is more of a business decision. And I'm like, man, once again, I'm hearing no. So I went to business school, A, to fulfill the dream of my father. Because my dad, you know, he sacrificed his dream to raise three kids. and He got his bachelor's, but his dream was to get his master's. So I wanted to do that for him. Two, remove the no. Because I knew nobody in that room had a business degree, like a master's in business. That all their stuff that they were saying, I was like, really? Because, uh. I went and got my MBA and uh, that's not exactly how this thing works. So, and I didn't call them out on it. It's just, it gave me credibility. Now, what you learn in business school, you don't go in and magically get all these things that make you, you know, go from design into finance. That's not it. You just become more of who you already are, which is sharper. So I didn't, I was I didn't change from being a designer. I just became a designer who knew how the business worked so I could be a better designer. And also business school gives you a broader network of people to reach out to, to get answers. Um, which in design world, you know, we go to our peers, but in the real world, you have to go to, you know, everyone to understand that. So the, the benefit and the blessing and going to a place like Stanford is my classmates came from private equity. They came from venture capital. They came from management consultant, things that I knew nothing about. So I was able to learn from them and bring that back to design, you know, and I'll show you a little bit of it in, in, in the lecture, how that influenced the projects I worked on. Cause I realized like, wait, Growing up, I used markers, pens, paper, graffiti, you know, spray cans. But now I can use data. Data is a new medium for me. I can create because of data. So I look at data the same way I look at markers and paint. Like, what can I make from this information? That push, push you less in a box of saying you're just a shoe person. And then it says, no, you're a creative person. Like, the greatest thing you can call someone is creative. Designer is such a limited title. That means you only make pretty things in the eyes of business. When you say you're creative, that means I can drop you into a conversation. We're negotiating, you know, customs relationships in Brazil, getting our product in. I can put you in a conversation over here for a contract negotiation for an athlete because you're a creative thinker. So um, it, it, it shifted the ability to, to challenge my perspective in meetings. It's funny because I think when you and I talked on the phone, too, we, you know, we touched on this idea of like creative problem solver. 
yep. right? Versus like a title. Um, and so I think you know, just to put that in a little bit, little bit of a framework is like, we're all solving everyday problems in our lives and in our businesses, you know, creatively and trying to come up with those creative solutions. Um, there's one more question over here. Thank you. Um, something I found very interesting. You, you mentioned that when you started your company, um, you mentioned a couple of points, but the first thing was your design culture, right? And, and you've come from a fortune 500 company, fortune 20 company, right? That innovated and you've been successful. Um, one of the things I'm curious about, and you talked about, um, have you guys done any work with, with fortune 500, other fortune 500 companies, because we're struggling with diversity, right? Across the board. We have an example like you here, who's, who's designing culture and and products and is very successful. And part of the design theory, as you mentioned, is having a perspective. The majority of young people and the majority of this country is now diverse, yet companies are struggling to design for those people that are going to grow up. Right. I mean, I, I, I come from the field of finance. I just left Wells Fargo for um, to do something like you in another place, but it's also my biggest struggle is is the lack of diversity, right? Yeah. And uh, right now, what I'm trying to do is create new culture there, right? Yeah. What What do you? I, I think your model is phenomenal, and you can actually help the rest of corporate America, right? But what What have you done, or what are some kind of um, some advice in starting changing cultures in places where, similar to you, I came from, you know, Wells Fargo, super. Um, uh, successful bank and I did marketing multicultural there, but now trying to take it to a firm who has no diversity. Yeah. How do you translate that right to, yeah. to a place where people don't get it? You know? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the first tactic that I employ is to add an asterisk to the word diversity so it's more comfortable. We say diversity, we mean race and gender. Yeah. We're very direct. Most people are uncomfortable with that conversation because to acknowledge that race is an issue is to acknowledge that certain people may be part of the problem. So it's, it's kind of this risky version. Like, I don't want to say that. Uh, can I call you black African-American? Man, call me black. Like, for, it doesn't bother me. I'm going to call you white. I'm going to call you Asian. It, it's, it's, you know, these are titles that make us beautiful. They're not titles that put us in this, this categorization. So what we did with the word diversity in the asterisk, as I said, first start with diverse thinkers, diversity of mindset. In order to have diversity of mindset, you need to have diversity of experiences. In order to have diversity of experiences, you might need cultural diversity because that means that people see the world differently, have different cultural norms. So the foundation is always about, you know, equality for people of color and women. But you have to start with mindset because that's something that is an easier barrier to entry. Because when people say, you're right, we do need people who think differently. We need divergent thinkers. We need creative problem solvers. It's like, yeah, we need people who have these types of experiences. Yeah. We also need people who are Latino and black who come from this community because they have all that. You, so you, you, you have to have a Trojan horse in your approach because when you go directly at the target, as much as we say that this country is ready for race conversations, it's really not. So you have to present it in a way that doesn't allow people to feel like you're blaming them or you're judging them. But you're trying to, once again, like I told that gentleman, you're trying to collectively find a solution. And everybody can agree that you have to have different types of mindsets. And then underneath that, that's when, that's when you can kind of have that zeitgeist around, you know, um, you know racial and, uh, and gender equality and racial and gender diversity. You guys are going to be in for a treat for the rest of the day, right? This is, this is awesome. Thank you, man. Um, did you have, uh, I think we we got one, one time for one more. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Then I'll wrap it up. Uh, yeah, this young brother's been waiting. So much. I think young brother asked. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Juan Hunt. Uh, I'm a recent college graduate. My degree is actually in criminal justice. Yeah, man, give him clap for that, man. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> hey, that's a big deal. Celebrate that. And uh, pardon me. One of the issues that I'm having. My degree is in criminal justice, yeah. minor in Africana studies. Yeah. And I've just, it's always been a passion for me to design. Like I've always liked it, but yeah. you know, sometimes you get kind of pushed into things. Yeah. 
my dad's a cop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, I think one of the issues that I'm having is kind of networking itself mm. in breaking these walls to actually reach out to people who are willing to teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people out here who have their cliques established and aren't willing to bring people in. Mm. How exactly do I kind of, uh, I guess, get past that hurdle and engage in the dialogue with them to kind of, I guess, learn some of the things that they're, they're learning. I'm looking for yeah. someone I can learn from. And a lot of people are very uh, standoffish. Yeah, yeah. And I'm look. I'm seeking a way to kind of rectify that and yeah. and build that relationship. Yeah. But how? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so what you're describing is what they call a sharing economy, which is a big movement in um, in investment right now. People are investing in startups that have a sharing economy. So, like Instagram has a sharing economy, right? And the reason why Instagram works is because you offer something before you receive something, and it doesn't have to be a physical offer or an artifact. It could be a conversation or an interesting point. So. You live in a digital age where it's way easier to, instead of joining someone else's clique, you can look at, you know, the things they read, the things they listen to and kind of, you know, get that guidance and mentorship through, you know, just consuming massive amount, massive amount of information. But if you want that personal connection, the best thing is to first look around this room with people right here, right? Start where you're at. There's always somebody near you that you can learn from that you can connect with. So the world is your classroom, right? Um, two, I think be willing um, to have a very curated uh, narrative that you put out in the world. So when you say criminal justice, my dad's a cop, that's all part of your story, which makes you unique and makes you memorable. It's harder for people to say no to your face. So put a face to the person that's sending a request. You know, literally send them like, here's a packaged bio question. Like, I'm interested in this. I want to work on this. I'm not asking for help. I'm asking for feedback. You ask for feedback versus someone helping you, that's a less, in their mind, that's a less... uh, less of an opportunity cost in terms of time. They're like, oh, he just want a quick critique. That's fine. But what you're really doing is establishing a rapport and a relationship. And you say, well, can I come back to you again? I'm doing this right now with the gentleman um, who's pretty, pretty high up at this investment, you know, private, this venture capital firm who also has a design background. He's like travels the world, has stuff in museums, you know, ran the media lab at MIT. And never in a million years did I think I would be able to talk to this guy. I was like, you know, he wouldn't want to deal with me. But I started by, you know, simply what I'm telling you, asking for feedback on something. And he didn't respond the first time. I followed up a second time. And then eventually I said, hey, if it's easier for you, I can come to you. And I just want feedback. Five minutes of your time, I'll leave you alone. That five minutes has turned into eight months of him signing himself up to say, you know, I want to help you. I want to mentor you to understand the Silicon Valley and how this thing works. So it's just, you don't need a lot of people. You just need that one person, you know? So cast a wide net and then you'll, you'll catch that one wave, man, that one relationship that's going to carry you through. Stuff and then afterwards, man, we 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 can talk. So. Yeah, I mean, even with with my interview series, I've discovered that people love to tell their stories, right? Like people really enjoy like giving information and trying to at least point you in the right direction. Um, and so, it, it, there's a book called The Four Hour Work Week, and half of it is ridiculous. But the but the but so the two hours <laughs> don't. But the rest of it like actually talks about being aggressive, exactly what you talked about in terms of outreach and like. Go, go to the CEO and ask the question. Like, you know, don't start at your boy that's an intern and, like, may not necessarily be in the notes. Like, be aggressive, but also be mindful that this person is busy and, like, you know, uh, revert back from them. So, so now I want to thank you. Thank you. Everybody, I mean, that was, that was, that was awesome. Um, you know, uh, I think we're going to take a break for lunch, but uh, you also have a, um, uh, uh, you write for Hypebeast, right? Yeah. The design yeah. fellow. So I would recommend that everybody looks that up. 
um, for other tidbits and information from, from Jason. But again, uh, thank you guys for listening to me. And um, what would you say, Kenny? Been behindthehustle.com. <laughs> you can also find a lot of cool stuff there. So thank you guys. like listening to comedy try watching it on the internet the folks behind the sideshow network have launched a new youtube channel called wait for it it's got interviews with comedians like reggie watts todd glass liza schleichinger slicing driving friends with her for 10 years one of the funniest people out there and i still have a hard time with the last name liza our very own owen benjamin that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more you don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.